you know, uh, puff pastry croissants. And I'm like, okay, they're not croissants. Maybe they're crescent uh-huh. rolls, but they're, they're, <laughs> not ma- they're not made out of puff pastries. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. Everyone except for the celiacs possibly that visit France are going to have eating a fabulous croissant or a tarte tartan, a parmier or for the most knowledgeable, a galette de roi. I did not pronounce that correctly, I'm sure. High on their list of things to eat when in France. What do all these things have in common? They are all made with puff pastry. Today we are talking all things puff pastry with someone that didn't start off their working life in the kitchen, nor did they grow up in France. But like so many of us, they got the France bug and followed their passions. This led Marty Michels to writing a cookbook for kids that all about French food. Marty, welcome to Fabulously Delicious. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm honoured to be here. Oh, it's an honour to have you. I mean, anybody that can teach kids how to cook um, <laughs> has to be a damn good cook, I'd say. Before we dive into all of that, let's get into a little bit about you. Maddie, you live in Toronto now, yes. but you were actually born and grew up in Australia. Is that right? Yeah, I was born in Adelaide and I grew up in Adelaide. Um, yeah, no one's from Adelaide, me. <laughs> um <laughs> No, plenty of people are from Adelaide. It's it's a big cricketing town, isn't it? Everyone's like, where's that? <laughs> um, it's the town of churches, right? That's that's what they always used to say growing up. There's a lot of churches there. It's a beautiful city. Um, and yeah, so I did. Uh, I went to school there. I did most of my university there. Um, lived in London for a couple of years when I was two. Um, lived in Sydney for a year. My dad worked for the ABC, so we travelled around a little bit with his job. Yeah, he was uh, an executive producer of a bunch of the nighttime current affairs shows. Um, but most of my, my growing up was done in Adelaide um, until I uh, moved to moved to France. And so were you, mum and dad, were they from Adelaide? Um, so my dad was born in England, um, and he, but he grew up in Holland. Um, and my mum was born in, um, in Adelaide, family Austrian from way back, but, um, the whole family born in Adelaide. So, um, yeah, for, for quite a number of years up until earlier this year, I had a European passport thanks to my dad. Mm -hmm. Um, just a British passport, um, not just a British passport, but it's not a European passport anymore. So yeah, dad, uh, dad came to live in Australia when he was 10. They were part of those uh, 10-pound passages um, on the boat. So your mum, you mentioned, had Austrian heritage. There actually is a lot of German heritage in Adelaide. Yeah, in Handorf. Yes, yeah, the little town of Handorf. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, there is a lot of German heritage, and I don't know about Austrian, but um, somewhere in, in my stuff in one of the countries where I've lived there was a book um, that was like the family tree of my mum's family and way back when um, her maiden name is Osterstock so that's you know definitely not from Adelaide there. (laughs) You're not related to the Von Trapp family children then? (laughs) I cannot sing so no (laughs) not at all. What was uh, growing up in Adelaide like? Is it a, a very foodie uh, town, Adelaide? So it's really interesting. I think um, when I was, you know, when I left, I was 24 and I thought, um, 
it was a great town to grow up and go to school in and maybe a great town to retire in, but I didn't think my adult life, that was where I wanted to be. Um, and it definitely, I don't, you know, I, I was sort of a little bit of a foodie. I was probably one of those annoying like food snobs at university, like thinks they know a lot and probably doesn't. Um, but I did, um, I was always interested in food. My mum uh, is an excellent cook and baker and they, they would have epic dinner parties like a couple times a month that would go on into the, the wee hours and um, she would make things like, you know, creme caramel and, you know, stuff that people weren't sort of making or eating, you know, in the, in the 1970s. And so I was sort of exposed to really good food at home. Um, Adelaide, I, like I don't remember it being a foodie town, but recently I went back maybe three years ago, three or four years ago, and I remember being blown away by how, what a great food scene it is, great coffee, great restaurants, great pastries. Um, so, you know, now I'm sort of regretting saying, oh, you know, I would never want to like live in Adelaide when I'm an adult because it looks like a great place to live. Um, and it's beautiful as well. It's a, it's a gorgeous city. Very green. Because I went there when I was on MasterChef and I um, right. I remember that it had a really fabulous uh, food market there in Adelaide. The Adelaide Central Market. So I think every time I go there, I take go and take the same photo <laughs> of the same things and all of the foods that I used to eat growing up. Um, yeah, so it, it actually does have a wonderful market. Um, and that's, you know, I would say that it's a world-class market, like compared to other markets I've been to, it's, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, that's somewhere that I always go, um, when I go back to visit, even if I'm not buying anything, I always wander every aisle and it's, it's amazing. So yeah, so it is a foodie town now, I think. I mean, you've got basically the Barossa Valley as a suburb, uh, right next door to Adelaide, right haven't you? Door. So, and all the fabulous wines that go along with that. Yeah, I mean, Australia, who knows when we're going to ever get back there, but Australia is a, is an amazing place for food and wine these days. I, uh, I'm constantly, you know, amazed and imp- not amazed because that sounds like I wouldn't expect it, but I'm constantly impressed by the, the quality of the the food scene and and the wines amazing right so so you didn't study uh cooking when you went to university or you went to university so you don't study cooking at university but you didn't study food did you what did you study so i don't know if you remember you're probably too young but like way back when university in australia was free to i i was actually really interested in going to hospitality school i was quite interested in it um, but, you know, when you're uh, 16 and you're applying for universities and stuff, you've got no idea really what you really want to do. So I, that was going to be, that's a trade school as well, right? Like it's not part of, it wasn't part of a university or a, you know, a, a government sort of funded, you know, body. So it was going to, that was going to cost money. And so I didn't apply for that um, because, you know, when you're 16, you're like, whoa, I could go to university or I could go here. I mean, it's changed now. I think, you know, now university is not free. Um, and it probably wasn't free, but there was not the hex debt anyway. Um, and so I applied for journalism. Um, my dad was a journalist and I think that was a big influence on me. Um, but I always had sort of an interest in, in food, but I really had an interest in, in the French language, um, because I studied it. Again, you're too young, but we only started learning languages at my school when I was in grade seven, so 12. Um, you know, now starting to learn it in kindergarten and whatever, but I loved it. From the very beginning, I loved learning French. I loved learning about the culture and the food. 
And so after I finished school, I spent a year as an exchange student in Brussels. Um, where I did uh, a year of school, like in French language. Um, so I was with a Francophone family who I'm still in touch with. And I, that really fired my passion for the French language and literature. And so when I got back, I was, I did the journalism for a year, but I, my heart really wasn't in it. And so I actually left journalism and went to pursue an arts degree. <laughs> you can imagine my parents are probably like, <laughs> okay. Anyway, arts degree led to um, an honours degree, led to a teaching certificate, led to a PhD in French literature, which felt very wrong. Um, it felt really silly to be doing a PhD in this rich language and this rich culture in Adelaide. So I, um, nothing to do with Adelaide there, but just I, I was like, this feels weird. So I, um, I bought a one-way ticket to Paris where I had uh, the name and phone number and address of my supervisor. I was going to like switch universities and switch supervisors and continue my studies there. So that's what brought me to France was actually the passion for the language and the literature and the food came afterwards. So you moved to Paris. Whereabouts did you end up in Paris? Oh, my goodness. So I stayed in a, an auberge, a foyer des jeunes filles, so like a hostel thing for young ladies, um, which, you know, I was then. And um, I stayed there for a, uh, a month and I, and I looked around for a flat. I didn't want to, I'd never really shared a flat with it, um, very many people and I wasn't sure that I wanted to do that. So I, um, I found a Chambre de Bonne on the sixth floor of an apartment building and it had an electric shower very unsafe um but you had to be in the shower to turn it on with the anyway it had uh, a toilet like sur le palier so one of those like you know in the ground toilets like down the hall it was like nine meters squared it was special so um but it was in the second arrondissement right by the rue Montorgueil. oh this is Old uh, neck of the woods. Yeah, my, it's my hood. So I right, yes. I visited it, and um, it was a Sunday, so nothing was like it was a Sunday afternoon, so nothing was open. So the day that I moved in, I was like, "Oh my god, I hit like jackpot in this neighborhood." I had no idea. This is nineteen ninety four five, so it's you know before it became super as it is now, right? Super very handy. Um So anyway, I love the neighborhood. Um, Loved it a lot, very central, close to walk everywhere, um, beautiful apartment, you know, well, room, not so great. And then the landlord and I had a, a bit of a, well, it wasn't a happy relationship with the landlord and he was a little bit crazy and I ended up, um, one day I had an argument with him about the electricity, he was trying to overcharge me or something and I, I was like, crying out of the building and the concierge came by and she said what's wrong and I said this is happening and I'm all by myself and I miss my mom and dad and she was like oh well the lady in like like escalier C or whatever is renting a room on the sixth floor in the other escalier so anyway she said I'll put you in touch and she did and I went to look at this room and it was not one room it was two Chambre de Bonne and both of them had balconies it was like 
luxurious. Yeah, jackpot. There was still a toilet. The toilet was still still the panning, so that wasn't fantastic. But I was the only the only one that used it. So I lived in that little place for um for four years, and it was um it was it was great. And then I, I spent another year and a bit in another little place just off the Remontego because I decided that I couldn't live in. 12 meters squared anymore because it was just what were you doing in paris well supposed to be doing my phd my phd but i I, but i didn't so i started doing the phd um and it felt very and i tried really hard i tried really hard i i didn't know anybody the courses the way they were organized i didn't really need anybody and i it was very hard and i was young and i was on a um, I had a stipend from the university, but it wasn't very much. So I needed another job. I ended up working at the Australian restaurant that used to be there called Woolloomooloo. So I worked there for about a year, uh, waiting tables. Um, Le Restaurant Australien, um, not there anymore, but it was a, I met lots of friends there. I'm still in touch with a few of them. Um, and yeah. So I did that and then I struggled to keep to working on my PhD and finally I just said, you know what, this is not the right time. So I, I dropped my PhD and I picked up some work teaching English as I'm sure we all do when we live in Paris, but I actually had a teaching degree. So, and so I, I actually really enjoyed the teaching part. I didn't like having so many jobs. So my goal was well, I'm going to go and do my TEFL qualification, which was at, um, the University of London in Paris. It was known as the, in, the, the Institute or something in Paris. Um, was right next door to the British Council. So I went and applied for that. And I did that, got my qualifications. And in the couple of years before I left Paris, I was working um, at the British Council, teaching English in their um, early learning center, the Young Learners Center, so kids. And I taught at um at a Catholic school, um, a Catholic private school as well. So I went from, you know, thousands of jobs to two really excellent jobs. Um, you know, I couldn't have asked for better jobs. So I did find my path teaching, but still not into food. <laughs> it's a long way before I'm into the food. Well, T- Toronto is now your home. Is that where you got into food? Um, yeah, I think it, I think we would have to say that that is where I got into food. Yeah, so... Quickly, uh, I met my husband in Morocco. Um, he's Canadian. We met on vacation. Uh, we were both there for like the, the Y2K New Year, like 99, 2000. Um, and so, yeah, I moved to Canada in the year 2000 uh, where I got a job teaching French. Um, it's hard to get up and just move to Canada. It's very, you know, to like Australia, like the immigration situation, you have to jumped through a lot of hoops but at the time they were looking for they were there was a big shortage of French teachers and I was qualified so that definitely helped my my case um so yeah I started teaching French um I miss Paris so so desperately desperately miss France speaking French because you know teaching French to young children isn't the same as speaking real French every day um, really miss the lifestyle, really miss the food, the availability of, you know, different things. And so I, I weaseled my way into a Master of Arts at the University of London in Paris, which was a distance program, which made you come to Paris like three summers in a row and do coursework in the summer. 
and then do distance work in between. So I got my sort of like weaseled my way back in. And um, during those summers, I started, you're also probably too young to remember, iWeb, a blog on iWeb, which is like so old, um, just to keep my family up to date um, rather than sending emails or phoning them. I had this blog on iWeb. So it's a private, you know, Mac-based uh, Apple product blog. And um, I would post pictures and little comments and whatever. And it was really fun. But my dad said to me, he's like, Marty, like, do you do anything else apart from like, you know, studying and eating? Because there's only photos of food here. And I'm like, but it's so interesting. Like the supermarket's fascinating. And like people want to see this stuff. And he was like, okay. So I had these little things going and I was always really interested in the food in France and how it was different from at home and whatever and once I'd finished my MA I got into another PhD here I am trying again <laughs> what number PhD is this again this is number two very I didn't finish this one either but I um yeah so I I took a year between those two things and I started my current blog um eatlivetravelright.com um, as part of just a, a way of being doing a, something a little bit creative in between academic sort of courses. And that's when I really started focusing on learning about food, um, making food, writing about food. I took a couple of courses at the hospitality school in Toronto, like the basic level culinary arts classes. Um, and yeah, so that was in 2009. And um, I sort of haven't looked back. So I'm still writing my blog. It's 12 years old, which is, you know, a grandma in blog, blog years. Uh, well, no, it's maybe not quite a grandma. It's not as old as like your David Leibovitz and those, those writers. But it's, you know, it's a long time to be writing. And I, I update it like three or four times a week, which is, you know, it's a job in itself. Um, but, yeah, it's led to amazing opportunities and a cookbook and I'm working on a second book and yeah it's it's so I sort of you know it was a long and winding path but I, I think if you look at all of the things that I did growing up and like you know as a young adult like they all do they're, they're check marks right you can be like oh yeah that makes sense that makes sense or that led to that whatever um everything everything happened for a reason what is it about French food that you like so much so I love the fact, and I think like my first book, um, and more actually the second one, based on the feedback that I've been getting from like the people I'm working with to test the recipes, I love that French food is actually a lot more simple than people give it credit for. Like you hear something, a name in French or whatever, and it sounds complicated or it sounds fancy. But then, um, yeah, so if you look at the actual ingredients, it's never like this big, long bucket list of ingredients. It's like simple things. And, you know, the, the, the baking is like, you know, butter, flour, eggs, sugar, vanilla. Like, you know, um, you can do a lot with, with a very few, very good quality ingredients. And I think that's what I love about it is that, you know, something like, you know, we're talking about like pastries the other day. Um, pastry isn't very many ingredients, but you can create amazing things out of those, you know, handful of ingredients. And people are always like, where'd you buy this? Well, I made it. No, you couldn't possibly. So I love that aspect of French food, that the simple aspect that people don't realize maybe when they're eating or hearing about it. 
you are listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast with Marty Michelle's, and we're going to deep dive into puff pastry in just a second. But first of all, if you'd like to support Fabulously Delicious, the podcast, you can do so by either the Buy Me A Coffee website where you can buy me a croissant. That's not confusing. I don't know what is. Or you could become a Patreon member and subscribe monthly. All support is greatly appreciated. I hope you're enjoying Fabulously Delicious and please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, be that Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple, if you could give me a five-star review, that would be fabulous. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Thank you very much. Now, back to Marty Michelle's and Puff Pastry. Um, today we are talking all things puff pastry. Um, well, we should have been, but we, we, we're getting onto it now. Um, or as they call it here in France, now here's one for my French pronunciations, pâté fouillette. I mean, really, what was I trying to say there? Thank you very much. Can you say that without me talking over you? Pâté fouillette. Merci beaucoup. Um, but in fact, the origins of uh, puff pastry apparently come from the Spanish. Is that right? You know, I have not heard that, but okay. Um, it wouldn't surprise me, but um, it wouldn't surprise me. Apparently it came from the Moorish influences in, uh, in Spain. They had the first uh, recipe of what we know as puff pastry now was in a Spanish cookbook in 1607 and then showed up in another in a French one in something like 1650. So it took about 50 years for it to get to, to France, which they had terrible roads back then. So that <laughs> sort of explains it, you know, like it took a long time for things to get there. So what is puff pastry? So puff pastry, uh, there's a couple of things to say about it. Um, so as a caveat here, 10 years ago, I would never have been on a podcast talking about any sort of pastry because I was like, I don't do pastry. I'm not one of those people. And now I do do pastry. Um, actually, cake demystified um, short crust pastry for me. And then from there on, it's just sort of like a hop, step and a jump to Shoe pastry, which I know you've spoken with Anne Ma about, and um, and puff. So puff is one of the ones that has a, a reputation for being difficult. Um, and up until quite recently in Canada, we couldn't really get great puff pastry um, in the supermarket. Like here in France, there's so many of them, and like pure butter ones, and they're pre-rolled, and they're pre-like everything. So you don't need to worry making your own and in fact lots of French people I speak to are like why would you have a recipe for puff pastry you just go to the supermarket and I'm like well not in all countries so um yeah so puff pastry um it's like it's a laminated dough which means that you are uh rolling and folding a block of butter into pastry um so that's why it's so buttery it has layers um and it is something that takes quite a long time you need to have a very cold kitchen cold hands, um, preferably a nice marble like countertop to work on. It's tricky to do well and it takes some time. Um, I've done it a few times in some cooking classes that I've done and every time I'm like, who would do this at home? Well, not very many people, but there is something called rough puff pastry, which is an approximation of puff pastry. It's very similar technique in terms of the rolling it out to a certain length, folding it in like a little book, turning it, rolling it, folding, turning. 
um, similar technique, but you're not um, you're not rolling the block of butter into uh, folding it into the the pastry. So it is very buttery still. Um, is it as puffy as real puff pastry? No. Do most people get a huge thrill when they make rough puff pastries for the first time? Yes, because they can see distinct layers in there, and they're like, I made this from scratch. I don't need to go to the store um, and and buy that puff pastry anymore. Um, so yeah, and puff pastry has so many uses. And like typically, I do make my own. I make my own rough puff um, a lot, but I also have um, you know in the freezer like pre-rolled rolls of it at all times because you can quickly store it. Uh, you can make palmier cookies, so sweet versions, savory versions. Um, you can make little like bread sticky twist things, sweet and savory versions. You can make tarts. You can make all sorts of things. Um, and really, really quickly as well, because if you've got it pre-made or you've made your own and it's in the freezer or it's in the fridge, um, you've got the whole world of uh, sweet and savory at your at your fingertips, literally. I want to break it down a little bit. So do you have to use butter to make puff pastry or can you use other types of fat? Well, I'm, I'm, I've, I have not made puff or rough puff with any butter, uh, with any fat other than butter. I imagine that um, at home we can get this, it's like margarine, but in sticks. Like we get our butter in sticks at home, which is the weirdest thing ever for me. Um, but you can get this, this margarine in sticks um, and it's like meant to be like for baking. Um, but I haven't, I haven't tried that. Um, I know people, you know, who can't eat butter for various reasons you know, would would think that they could use that. But, you know, you always say if you're, like, experimenting or using a different ingredient than the recipe says, I can't guarantee this is going to work or not. I have made um, short crust pastry with olive oil. Um, it's a bit crumbly. It doesn't come together quite as well. And I have made short crust pastry with, um, with margarine. Um, again, doesn't have quite the same consistency for, like, the rolling out. Um, so I don't know. Um, maybe that's something that I can do as a little experiment. But um, I don't know. Have you ever made anything without? Have you ever made it without butter? Uh, I, no, I haven't. But I'm just thinking of these. Uh, I'm addicted to the Great British Baking shows. Yeah. And they do make their pies, the tops of their pies, often lard. use lard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, as that. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if that's still a puff pastry if they're using lard. They're still getting layers, so I'm assuming it is. Well, that's really interesting, but lard is not something that is typically used here in France, or is it? Is that something that people use? I don't think it is. It, at home it is. Um, or vegetable shortening, right? There is a lost in translation moment goes on with cooking. Like there is no sour cream here. In fact, I've asked French people at the supermarket for sour cream, translated it and asked for it and gotten a very distinctive, ooh, um, response. Why would you want this? Like, what is this about? Like, seriously, sour cream, why would you want this? I do think that, yes, I think that um, the shortening is possibly one of those things that gets uh, lost in translation there. I'm never really looking for that in the supermarket. I just get really excited because the butter here has got a higher butter, like fat percentage than ours at home. So although we're getting better, we can get some good French butter now um, or good Canadian butter with high um, fat content, which is always better to use for pastry because it tastes better, yeah. How do you get all of those layers in puff pastry? Well, you have to roll and 
fold and roll and fold. And that's why you need to have a cold, cool um, space that you're working in because when you're working with something with so much butter, um, it, if you're keeping rolling it and folding it and you're touching it all the time, it's going to get softer and softer and be impossible to, to do. So I worked at, um, no, I worked at, I took a class at um, La Cuisine Paris um, a few years ago where we, we made the, the puff pastry from scratch. We made um, mille feuilles and it was amazing. But, you know, they had every stage of the rolling and folding, like, in the fridge ready to go because we would roll and fold and then they'd be like, okay, now that has to go in the fridge for 30 minutes. So the class wasn't, you know, seven hours long. Like, we couldn't have 30 minutes to wait. So they would pull out, like, and this is what it's going to look like after 30 minutes in the fridge. So it's a lot of, um, you roll it out until it's quite long, um, the, your pastry, and then you're folding it like a little, like, present. You're turning it. And each time you fold it and turn it and roll and fold it again, that's adding extra layers. So I can't remember actually offhand how many times you're supposed to turn it, but you're supposed, there's a certain amount to give you like the minimum like amount of layers there. Ah, see, this is when you need the thumbprint method. So your thumbprint's not just for opening oh. your mobile phone, if you remember. So it's one, two, and three. So yeah, you've right. got the three thumbprints on your thing. Yeah. That's what you need there. Yes. That's so very that you smart. Get yeah. through. You have your puff pastry, but then to make a croissant, you need to add yeast. Is that right? And how do you, when do you do that? Croissants are not puff pastry. Right. What are they? Um, well, it's like a, a yeasted dough. I mean, it's very similar. There's a lot of the same rolling and folding technique as well. Um, I do. I have a recipe for croissant in in my book, but it is they're what we would call quick croissant. They don't. Um, again, they don't have the laminate. The, sorry, the lamination, which is the block of butter that you're rolling and folding in. Um, so yeah, they do have yeast. Um, they do take a long time. Um, even the quick ones, um, the hands-on time is pretty, not very much, but uh, there's a lot of wait time involved. But it's not, it's not, um, you see a lot of people, um, you know, I see sometimes on, online, like, you know, uh, puff pastry croissants. And I'm like, okay, they're not croissants. Maybe they're present rolls, but they're, they're, not made, they're not made out of puff pastry. It's a different, a different pastry than, than the puff, yeah. Uh, what's your favourite recipe using puff pastry then? So I can't go past a palmier. Um, so for those people that don't know what a palmier is, palmier is translates as palm tree, um, but they're also the name of a, a cookie, um, sometimes called elephant ears in English because they are, it is a sheet of puff pastry, typically uh, layered with butter and, sorry, uh, sprinkled with butter and, um, and sugar and rolled into the center to create little, like two little rolls, then cuts, and um, it obviously puffs in the, the oven because it's puff pastry, um, into these big, sometimes giant, at the, the boulangerie here, you can get really big ones, the palmier. Um, I like little ones, um, but yeah, they look like the fronds of a palm tree or like elephant ears, if you like. Um, and I love them because they're great with just butter and sugar, they're great with just sugar um, sometimes as well if you don't have melted butter to spread on. But they're really great with like um, like a Nutella spread in or jam um, or even as a savory iteration uh, with pesto or tapenade. Or it's just it's a great technique. It's a great recipe to, to have on hand. 
Um, and also you're able to, with a puff, you know, you can uh, assemble your sort of like whatever you're making. So say you're making a little pesto version, you would roll them up and you would just put them in the freezer um, until they were frozen. Um, and then you could also, you would cut them and then you would could freeze them and then cook them from frozen. So I love that about little like treats like that. You can have them sort of ready to go if people drop in, you know, for apéro or a snack after school or whatever. We're having our lovely English summer here in France this year. Um, I see that, yeah. I'm looking out on – it's a lovely August day and the pool looks amazing and the sky looks very, well, let's just say grey. But uh, you're from Adelaide, so you're used to those lovely hot summers in Adelaide where you get up to 45 degrees. Yeah. What tips do you have for everyone around the world that might be listening that might not have a cool kitchen to work in and they want to make pastry? Uh, have you got any tips for how to cool your kitchen, so to speak, or how to make pastry in a hot kitchen? Let's go with how to make pastry in a hot kitchen because I have air conditioning at my house, not here but in Canada, and even with air conditioning on, um, with your oven on, it's still not super cool. Um, so uh, patience is the thing that you need if you are making pastry in a hot climate or a, a hot kitchen or a hot a hot room. Um, and don't be afraid to put it back in the freezer or the fridge at different stages. If you're rolling it and anything like a croissant that you're making or a puff pastry or any type of pastry, if the pastry is kind of like the butter is melting and dribbling out, then your pastry is too warm. You need to put it back in at whatever stage it is, wrap it in plastic, wrap it in parchment, put it in the freezer, let it like chill for a little bit and then continue to work. I think the, the mistake a lot of people make um, with pastry is that they, they aren't patient enough um, or they're, you know, they're sort of like, you know, in a hurry and I've got to get this done and whatever, like don't be in a hurry. And don't be afraid to stop and take a break, pop it in the fridge, pop it in the freezer, and come back to it. Um, there's, there's no way, if you're starting, if you, with your puffs, if you're rolling it and the, the butter is melted, the, there's no way that you're going to be able to fold it and roll it out again. Um, and then people make the mistake of trying to add extra flour so that it's not as, like, sticky. But pastry is, like, baking is a science, right? It's precise. So imagine if your pastry is, like, out on the, the countertop and the butter is melting, you're like, oh, just add some extra flour to it. No, because you might end up adding like way too much flour. Your pastry might be puffy. It won't be as puffy. It won't be as light. So you can't just do that. You can't just add in extra flour um, to a pastry at a random stage because it's adding, it's changing the ratio, right? So patience, Yeah. I think it was the Barefoot Contessa or it might have been Nigella Lawson. I can't remember. I always get them confused. They're so similar. I think it was the Barefoot Contessa that she had a piece of marble cut to the same mm. size as their as their kitchen, as their fridge yeah. shelf, uh, that I think it was, or their freezer shelves so that they could wow. put it in there to get cold and then take it out um, and use that to roll their pastry out. So we could always go to that extreme. For oh, sure. <laughs> Got a new book coming out soon. Are there any puff pastry recipes in it? There are actually. There are there are palmier. There are palmier. Um and there are what else is there? Oh little um tossade, like little chocolate custard uh pastry twist things, little yes. 
Um, and yeah, and they're a palmier. So apart from that, so the book is, um, well, the book itself is called French Food for Everyone. And this chapter, I'm, as I said, I'm releasing it a chapter at a time, is called Le Goûter. Le Goûter is a, uh, a time of the day where kids um, have a snack after school. Le Goûter is always sweet. Um, I still remember uh, somebody that was editing my other book, not my editor, but uh, somebody down the line wrote a note saying um, nowadays there's more uh, there are more people eating healthier goûter in France and I'm like mm, I think it's pretty still pretty sweet like le goûter is a sweet time of day um, yeah because I think you know kids have a long school day here and then dinner isn't until much later than in other countries so they need something to kind of keep them going and typically it's like a little cookie a biscuit um, a little snack from the bakery, a little piece of cake, a financier. So there's all these little handheld, like easy to eat little snacks, easy to make snacks, and they're all sweet. So yeah, it's yeah. When we come to Toronto, because uh, everybody wants to go to Toronto. I mean, everyone should come here to France, but after France, it should be Toronto. Where's the best place to get uh, pastries in Toronto? Oh, so there are so many places now as compared to, so I've been in Toronto for 20 years and back then it was, it was not like it is now. Um, there was a couple of places um, off the top of my head, Nadej, uh, her name is Nadej and she has three or four different patisseries around uh, the city. She is from France and she imports a butter from France uh, to make her croissant and all of her pastries. Um, maybe she doesn't anymore because we do have excellent Canadian butter now, that high percentage of butter fat. Um, but she makes beautiful um, baked goods, but also pastries. So like, you know, your fancy, you know, fraisier and whatever. Um, but there's also a number of really great French restaurants. Um, just went to one recently, sat on a patio. It was like a big moment um, after many months. Um, called Pompette and best creme caramel that I've eaten in I can't remember when so um, again French run um, yeah but we have good pastry now in Toronto we have good bread um, it's it's a, it's a foodie city too Fabulous. Well, we can't wait to come and visit when we can all travel again. Canada, I've never been to, but it is high on the list of places to go. So uh, we'll be there soon, I'm sure, as soon as we can all travel. It's been fabulously delicious talking to you, Marty. I look forward to uh, coming to visit you in Toronto one day, or maybe you'll have to come up to Montmorillon from where you are on your next visit. For, uh, oh, I'd love that. That yeah, would be fabulous. Would Thank that. you so much for teaching us about uh, uh, a lot about puff pastry. Thank you for being on Fabulously Delicious. Well, thank you for having me. Merci beaucoup. Merci. As the youngsters would say, what a might bomb moment that was about the croissant not being made from puff pastry. Marty told us all about it. I'm going to find a pastry chef now, I think, or a baker somewhere here in France for a future episode to tell us more, I think. That is the plan. Marty Michels, it was fabulous learning about your journey into food, so thanks for sharing that with my fabulously delicious audience. Speaking of fabulously delicious audience, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious Today. 
Don't forget, if you like this episode, then please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, and share me around, of course, because I love to be shared around. Well, the podcast, that is. Yep. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then you can do so by buying me a croissant via the Buy Me A Coffee website. Or you can become a Patreon if you'd like to support on a more continual basis rather than the one-off croissant. Any help is appreciated so that I can bring you more Fabulously Delicious people to Fabulously Delicious. Oh, and if you're planning a trip next year or when we can all travel again to France, then why not book in a one-hour Zoom call with me? That's right, you can talk to me for an hour via Zoom on all things on how to plan a fabulous trip to France. You can do that by the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes of this episode or by checking out my website, www.andrewpryorfabulously.com. In 2022, you will hopefully be able to come and join me in person here in Montmorillon for some fabulous cooking classes, as well as some small group tours of France. I'm Andrew Pryor, and my motto in life is, whatever you do, do it fabulously. So why not join me every week here on Fabulously Delicious, the podcast. Abiento and bon app. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.